by that story, I forgot to turn my mic on. <laughs> Appreciate the Tweed children giving us that wonderful rendition of the Christmas story. So this Christmas, we've been looking at the songs of Christmas found in the book of Luke. And perhaps they're the best response to the mystery of Christmas. You know, we love music because it takes us to another place. So I want to ask you kind of a personal question this morning. You need to raise a hands here. How many of you, and let's, let's just be honest this morning, have a bad singing voice? Just, just stick your hand up there. Just, let's just be honest. All right, that, that's good to know. I also know that there are people that have good singing voices. Now, I'm not saying you're going to cut a DVD or something like that next week, but you have a pretty good voice. You can carry a tune. Just, just kind of stick your hand up. Okay. Thank you, Kevin. <laughs> just remember also that we've been singing the whole time this morning, so if you need to pull your neighbor's hand down, you feel free to do so. Somebody pull Kevin down there for us. I fit into the... Uh, the bad voices crew. I knew I didn't have a good voice. I knew I didn't have a good voice when my parents asked me to learn two songs, softly and tenderly on a hill far away. So that kind of tells you about my voice. Alright, I got a loose connection here. started looking at Mary's song a couple weeks ago. And you know, I don't know if Mary had a voice like Faith Hill, and I don't know that Zachariah was a crooner like Frank Sinatra, but regardless of how their voices were, they wrote some absolutely wonderful songs. So we looked at Mary a couple weeks ago. Today we're going to look at Zachariah's song, and we're going to begin in Luke chapter 1, verse 5. You can turn there if you like, and all the references will also be on the screen. Luke 1, chapter 1, verse 5 begins. In the time of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah, who belonged to the priestly division of Abijah. His wife Elizabeth was also a descendant of Aaron. So Luke wastes no time in giving the people context. They would have understood the significance of the phrase, in the time of Herod. In fact, they would have gasped. I won't ask you to do that like we did a couple weeks ago and practiced your gasping. But they would have understood it. They would have known that this was extremely significant. King Herod was a puppet king for the Roman government. He was a terrible man. He taxed the people with no mercy. The Roman government, they didn't care about that outpost called Israel south, many miles south of Rome. And he could basically do whatever he wanted. And so he would tax the people heavily to pay for his lavish lifestyle. He was also a cold-blooded murderer. We're all familiar with the book of Matthew when it talks about how he had 
all those under the age of two, the firstborns killed in and around Bethlehem. Herod represented a terrible time for the nation of Israel. But to be honest, foreign oppression was nothing new for the Israelites. Yeah, back in the book of Genesis, you may remember this from our study of the series, The Story. God made Abraham a promise that his descendants, the nation of Israel, would number like the stars. And then there was the promise, part of that promise, that the lineage would come from, the, from David, the Messiah would come out of the lineage of, of King David, and they would be a great nation. But up until this point, they've known a lot of oppression. For the last thousand years, they've been the Assyrians, the Babylonians, the Persians, the Greeks, and then in 63 BC, the Romans were oppressing them. Let's be honest. After all those years, you know some people have begun to doubt. Maybe Caesar's as good as it gets. You know, at least it's not like the, the cruelty of the Assyrians. At least it's not like the Babylonians hauling off our best and our brightest and our riches. Maybe, maybe Caesar's okay. But there's a few that still held out hope. There's something else you need to understand, too. There have been 400 years since the nation of Israel had heard from God. 400 years of silence. No word, no prophets, no vision, nothing. Until verse 11. Then an angel of the Lord appeared to him, standing at the right side of the altar of incense. When Zechariah saw him, he was startled and was gripping with fear. But the angel said to him, do not be afraid, Zechariah. Your prayer has been heard. Your wife, Elizabeth, will bear you a son, and you are to call him John. He will be a joy and a delight to you, and many will rejoice because of his birth, for he will be great in the sight of the Lord. He is never to take wine or fermented drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even before he is born. He will bring back many of the people of Israel to the Lord, their God. And he will go on before the Lord in spirit and in the power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the parents of their children and the disobedience to the wisdom of righteousness to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. Now, I would expect that this was the last thing that Zechariah expected to hear that day. How long has it been since they've heard from God? 400 years. So I doubt that day when the priest Zechariah went into the temple, he was expecting to hear from an angel that day. The silence had been deafening, not only for Israel, but also for Zechariah on a personal level. I don't know exactly what he was thinking when the angel came and said, your prayer has been heard. But I have to wonder, did he think, what prayer? 
prayer that we used to pray when we still had the energy to raise a baby? Do you mean the prayer that my wife used to pray as she wept uncontrollably? uncontrollably? Do you mean the prayer? The prayer that we stopped praying those many years ago? That prayer? I don't know exactly what he was thinking, but I think we get a little bit of insight based on his response in the next verse. Zechariah asked the angel, how can I be sure of this? I am an old man, and my wife is well along in years. And I don't think that was the response the angel was expecting either when you hear the angel's reply as we continue in verse 19. The angel said to him, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God. And I have been sent to speak to you and to tell you this good news. And now you will be silent and not be able to speak until the day this happens. Why? Because you did not believe my words, which will come true. When? At the appointed time. Meanwhile, the people were waiting for Zechariah and wondering why he stayed so long in the temple. When he came out, he could not speak to them. Then they realized that he had seen a vision in the temple, for he kept making signs to them, but he was unable to speak. So Elizabeth, after all these years, is finally able to conceive, and on top of that, her husband can't talk back to her for nine months. <laughs> I mean, somebody's living right, right? What's the matter, honey? The angel's got your tongue? I don't know what kind of tricks she might have played on him. Who knows? But you know, I think a lot of times if we really examine ourselves, we're a lot more like Zachariah than we are Mary. I think it takes a lot of us some time to be able to trust. Remember last week, when we, or two weeks ago, when we talked about Mary? Her questions weren't really about, is this going to happen? Her questions were more along the lines of, how this is going to happen. She trusted God that what he said was going to happen. Zechariah is a lot different. It's more along the lines of, is this really going to happen? And I think many of us, when we examine ourselves, we are a lot more like that. Everybody knew the promises. The promises to Abraham and the promises to David. But at this stage in history, I think everybody's just kind of forgotten about them. It's been a long time. Let's say you and I agreed to meet for lunch. If you're more than 10 or 15 minutes late, I'm probably going to call you text you, hey, we still are? Did you forget about me? Everything okay? And if 10 or 15 days go by, I'm really going to start to wonder. I mean, are you mad at me? Did I offend you? Did something happen to you? You're in the hospital? Silence is tough. And silence has a way of bringing out questions in us, doesn't it? 
And sometimes the questions are, how long? How much longer, God? How much longer till I find a job? How much longer until the doctors figure out what's wrong with me? How much longer until my kids find you? Or how much longer till my parents growing up as a kid that I could tell Christmas was getting close is when the Sears Christmas wish book came in the mail. How many of you remember the Sears Christmas wish book, J.C. Penney? I'll really date myself. Montgomery Wards? I mean, that was a big deal, wasn't it? The wish book came? You know, my brothers and I, we couldn't wait for it to come. I think it usually comes sometime in October. I had three brothers. We would just fight over that thing. We ended up tearing the pages in and just wear that thing out. My mom would make us take turns, and the pages would be all dog-eared. We were all circling stuff that we wanted. I mean, I would practically have the whole thing memorized. Well, the toy section. I mean, who cares about clothes anyway, right? But I'd just pour through the toy section, you know, when I wasn't reading my Bible or praying. That was <laughs> and I would just, like I said, circle those things and just kind of remind my parents like every day just in case they would forget. And then all there was left to do was just wait. Just wait. And you can bet that my brother, my three brothers and I, we always knew how many days were left to Christmas. By the way, it's nine days today, okay? Nine days, not that I'm counting, but just, just so you know. It's a lot easier to wait when you can count down. It's a lot harder to wait when you have to wait in silence. And that's what Zechariah was experiencing. For nine months, he couldn't say anything. And then, let's pick up in verse 57. When it was time for Elizabeth to have her baby, she gave birth to a son. Her neighbors and relatives heard that the Lord had shown her great mercy, and they shared her joy. On the eighth day, they came to circumcise the child, and they were going to name him after his father, Zechariah. But his mother spoke up and said, No, he is to be called John, he said to her, there is no one among your relatives who has that name. Then they made a sign to his father to find out what he would like to name the child. He asked for a writing tablet, and to everyone's astonishment, he wrote, his name is John. Immediately, his mouth was opened and his tongue set free, and he began to speak, praising God. I don't know what you envision Zachariah to look like here, but I envision this, this kind of elderly, frail man. 
But when the time comes for him to begin talking again, and it doesn't specifically say that after he wrote this, he said the child's name, but I kind of get that impression. And I just expect this elderly, frail man just to kind of have this big, booming voice. His name is John! And everybody's like, okay, okay, we get it. That's just kind of what I expect. So how many of you, when your children were born, kind of had a song ready on the spot. Yeah, me neither. All five of my children, you know, I was too busy trying to keep from passing out or figure out exactly what it was Renee needed, you know, and run my name, no, no, don't touch me, that kind of idea. Didn't have a song ready, but Zachariah has this, this song ready. And I hope that if you find yourself in a spot like Zachariah, maybe you're there this morning and you feel like God is silent. Maybe you've been praying for something for a long time. That maybe Zechariah's song can give you hope. Begin at verse 67. This is his song. Praise be to the Lord, the God of Israel, because he has come to his people and redeemed them. He has raised up a horn of salvation for us and in the house of his servant David. And as he said through the holy prophets of long ago, salvation from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us, to show mercy to our ancestors and to remember his holy covenant. The oath he swore to our father Abraham to rescue us from the hand of our enemies and to enable us to serve him without fear and holiness and righteousness before him all of our days. And you, my child, will be called a prophet of the Most High, for you will go out before the Lord to prepare a way for him and to give his people the knowledge of salvation through the forgiveness of their sins. Because of the tender mercy of our God, by which the rising sun will come to us from heaven, to shine on those living in darkness and in the shadow of death, to guide our feet into the path of peace. And the child grew and became strong in spirit, and he lived in the wilderness, and he appeared publicly to Israel. So we just kind of close this morning. I just want to point out a couple things in this song. The first thing is, Zechariah remembers the promise. He remembers the promise to his ancestors, Abraham and David, that God has not forgotten them. Verse 72, and to remember his holy covenant, the oath he swore to our father Abraham to rescue us from the hand of our enemies. God has kept his promise. And now Zechariah is coming around to Mary's way of thinking. Remember a couple weeks ago when we were talking about Mary, we talked, talked, mentioned how no word from God shall ever fail. Or maybe your version put it this way, nothing is impossible with God. You see, Zechariah has taken this journey in silence. And he's gone from a place of I can't to God can. Sometimes to see what God is doing, we have to see what God has done. To see what God is doing, we first have to see what God has done. That's exactly what Zechariah is thinking about. Second thing is this. He reminds himself of his purpose. Zechariah was a priest. He was a faithful man. He was a devout man. 
You know, maybe the equivalent of a, of a preacher today. You know, I think sometimes we think about preachers and, and we think preachers have it all together, that our, that our families don't have any problems and no struggles. And maybe preachers are guilty of putting across those errors or maybe we just in, interpret it that way, but, but nothing could be further from the truth. I don't know how many of you have ever heard the, the famous, uh, famous, I don't like that word, but anyway, the well-known author Max Licato, and, and he speaks a lot. If you've ever heard him speak, and he does this often, he will pray this prayer right before he speaks. Forgive the one who speaks, for his sins are many. Or sometimes I hear that, and I think maybe my prayer ought to be, forgive the sins of the speaker, for his sins are many more than Max Licato's. <laughs> But you have to love that prayer. Just, just the, the humility of it. Pastors don't have it all figured out. Just follow me around for a day. You'll figure that out. Follow my family me around a day. You'll, you'll find that out. But none of us are immune to discouragement, to disillusionment. None of us are immune to doubt. But it doesn't give us an excuse not to serve talks about purpose here. Verse 74 and 75. To rescue us from the hand of our enemies and to enable us to serve him without fear. He's reminding us not only are we saved from our sins, we are saved to something. We have the good news that we are saved when we accept Jesus Christ, but what have we been saved for? We have been saved to serve him all of our days. God has given every one of us gifts and talents and abilities. And when you're a Christian, he intends for you to use those gifts, talents, and abilities to serve him. Church, I want you to just, I just want to take a minute to tell you how impressed and how encouraged I am by the servant heart of our church. Back in September marked 20 years for me to be at Burning Bush Baptist Church. And over and over and over, I have watched the servant heart of this church. I have seen over and over this church meet needs. Whether it's giving to missions, whether it's participating in a building program, giving to natural disaster relief, providing scholarships for kids to, to go to camp that can't afford it, maybe meeting a personal need in a family, a medical need, something like that, or just other needs. Burning Bush Baptist Church, I've observed through the years, and I know it was long before I came here, it was that way. Over and over, they meet needs, they respond. I'll give you one quick example. Last spring, our Jamaica team did a fundraiser and they raised $3,600 for a supper. They did one supper. And there were some people that were really surprised at that amount. It didn't surprise me in the least. Because I've seen our church do it over and over. It's not just money. You know, occasionally somebody will say something to me. And I think they're, maybe they came from a background where churches would do these big, all you know, everybody would come together and do some big event together. Maybe canvases neighborhoods or whatever. And they say, well, I just don't see where people serve at Burning Bush. Um, I just think to myself, people are serving everywhere. But it's more of a decentralized approach. We're not doing these great big, everybody come on Saturday and we're going to go do this big thing. 
It's this decentralized approach where God's just using, and people are just using their gifts all through our community. And a lot of it doesn't see a lot of publicity. A lot of people don't even know these things going on. I just see these people serving and using their gifts over and over. People going up to the ICU at the hospital and, and serving meals up there. Ladies just involved in all kinds of projects throughout our community. People feeding people in the summertime. People providing meals, Easter baskets, Christmas meals. Monday morning I came into work and there's all these gifts in front of our children's director, Mitzi Callahan's door. It's like big bags of gifts. I mean, like, I pulled one up and the handle broke on it. That's how heavy it was. And here's a picture. All those things eventually got into a, a Mitzi's car there. And I don't know anything about it. I still don't really know what it was. But I know that one of our small groups had kind of come in and all that stuff was going to a family to provide for them for Christmas. And that's just the one I know about. I know there's a lot more of that kind of stuff that happens. And I just see it over and over. I hear about the men in our community. They don't invite me to go to these things. I don't know why, but anyway, they, they're doing construction projects, and they're cleaning people's yards, and I'll go visit somebody, and they oh, yeah, a bunch of guys from the church were here last week. They did this, this, and this. And it's just incredible. You heard Billy talk about young America and our, and our youth serving there, and, you know, the mission trips that we talk about. That doesn't even cover all the people who are just serving in the church, you know, the sound people and the video people and people that teach Sunday school. One of my favorite stories, a few years ago, Billy alluded to that thing that we have in the bulletin that uh, gives you an opportunity to serve somewhere in our church. And the first Sunday that we put it in there, we kind of mentioned it and kind of put an emphasis on it. And one of them came back, and well, I'll just tell you who it is. He doesn't know I'm going to mention his name. It was Alex Grayson. He was like eight years old at the time. <laughs> He said he wanted to serve in the cafe. Isn't that awesome? Cheryl, good job. Raising that boy right. You just see that. I missed something. Cheryl, did you talk back to me? The things that go on here is not because we've been saved just because, but because we've been saved to do something. We have a mission, and our mission is to show people Jesus, to go and make disciples. You know, two weeks ago, I concluded the sermon by saying that this Christmas season, you might be the only way somebody sees Jesus. Folks, I see Jesus in you. I see it when our parking lot guys are out in the cold winter rain like last week, just helping people find parking places. I see it in the youth serving young America. I see it in folks teaching Sunday school. I see it in the young men that have been going around here setting up tables and chairs for all these different events that have been going on during the Christmas season. I see it in those rocking babies down in the nursery, in those securing our campus and and the small group leaders and the musicians that are here early in the morning and folks, like I mentioned earlier, headed out and serving meals and folks singing in nursing homes on Thursday and people headed to Jamaica and Nicaragua and disaster relief efforts. And I could just go on and on with that list. 
I love seeing it in you and it excites me as we enter a new year that people can continue to see Jesus in you and me. Because we are a reflection of Christ. And I know the Christmas season can sometimes be a, a season of doubt and disillusionment and discouragement. And if you find your place, if you find yourself in a place of silence, Consider Zechariah's psalm. Maybe you feel forgotten. Maybe you feel neglected. Maybe you've been praying a prayer for a lot of years. Just remember sometimes you have to see what God has done to see what God is doing. And I want you to encourage you to go on a journey from I can't to God can. Yeah, I can't can be a truth, but it's not the whole truth. The whole truth is, I can't, but God can. And if you are looking for peace this Christmas, remember that every promise and every purpose that we've talked about this morning is found in Jesus Christ. And I'll conclude with the last couple verses of this song that Zechariah said. Because of the tender mercy of our God, by which the rising sun will come to us from heaven, to shine on those living in darkness, and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the path of peace. Would you pray with me?